Adam Gentleson has been on the program before. He is the author of Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. And it looks at the history of and the destruction uh, of by the filibuster. And we've been talking a lot about the filibuster. And he makes the case for reforming or getting rid of the filibuster. And I wanted to talk to him more about it as we've now seen an evolution in what's happening among Democrats and even among the president. And of course, as we're looking at uh, Republicans using horrendous uh, laws to suppress the vote and we need to pass uh, voting rights laws in the For the People Act. Adam Jettelson, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to be here. Yes, and I should also point out, of course, you're the executive director of Battleborn Collective and former deputy chief of staff to Senator Harry Reid uh, and someone who knows all about how <laughs> the Senate works. Uh, I wanted to just give people or have you give people just a brief refresher on the filibuster and its um, really destructive uh, use by Republicans, the way it's been used and, you know, they keep hearing, people keep hearing, um, and, and the president said it too, um, it uh, is a relic of the Jim Crow era. He agreed with President Obama saying that, and you've talked about that. And, uh, of course, uh, Mitch McConnell denied that and said it wasn't born in racism and all of this kind of thing. So talk a little bit about that so people just have that information as they're talking to other folks who are going to say, oh, no, that's not true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Senator McConnell is just wrong. Um, he's been taken to the cleaners on this statement, um, trying to deny the filibuster's racist history by fact checkers, by historians, by political scientists who've just been all over him because he's just flat out wrong. Um, but, but just to back it up a little bit from there, one, one thing that's important to, to, for your listeners to understand about the filibuster is that it wasn't supposed to be part of the Senate in the first place. Um, it wasn't in the original Senate. Um, and the framers were very clear that they didn't want anything like the filibuster to ever exist. Um, they created the Senate to be a thoughtful, deliberative check on the House of Representatives. But the emphasis here is on thoughtful and deliberative. They wanted it to actually deliberate. Um, and so they created it as a majority rule institution where there were no supermajority thresholds. Everything passed or failed on a simple majority. And they set clear limits on debate. And they wanted senators to, to be thoughtful in their debate. Um, but they wanted them to be limited. They didn't want debate to be used as a tool for obstruction. They had seen how this worked in the Articles of Confederation, where the Congress in that version of government um, had a supermajority threshold, and that created a tremendous amount of gridlock. Uh, so the framers saw that something like the filibuster would create gridlock, and they were very careful to try to strike a balance between majority rule and minority rights that would not allow something like the filibuster to, to come into play and create gridlock. Um, that balance existed for about half a century um, until uh, they, they made some changes to the rules that created a loophole that several decades later allowed John Calhoun of South Carolina to come along and start innovating what we would today describe as the talking filibuster. Um, he did it. He was the leading advocate on uh, behalf of the slave power in Congress. He was a senator from South Carolina um, and sort of the, uh, the leader of a theory called nullification, which was sort of an antecedent to the Civil War, the idea that uh, individual states had the right to um, nullify federal laws. Um, he laid a lot of the intellectual groundwork for the Confederacy in his time. He was in the uh, Senate in the 1830s and 1840s. Um, and so he was sort of the intellectual godfather of the Confederacy. And part of the tools that he introduced to empower the minority over the majority was this talking filibuster. 
Um, he was not the only person who used it, but he was its most um, aggressive um, uh, uh, use. Um, uh, what's the word? You know, he put it to use more aggressively than anybody else. Um, and he was more creative about, about the way he used it. So that was its sort of immediate origins. And then fast forward to the Jim Crow era, this, that's when the filibuster acquired the ability to increase the number of votes that it takes to pass a bill. There was a rule introduced in 1917 that allowed it to start doing this. Uh, and this new filibuster, with the ability to create a supermajority threshold for bills, was only applied to civil rights for the from the end of Reconstruction in 1877 to 1964. The only bills that were consistently forced to clear a supermajority threshold, and the only bills that failed to clear that supermajority threshold, were civil rights bills. Um, so it is in, inextricably linked to racism and the in, in, uh, effort, efforts to promote and maintain white supremacy. There's just no debate about that. Um, fast forward to today, um, even in the Jim Crow era, the filibuster was hard to use. You had to talk on the floor in order to deploy it. Um, you had to coordinate with your allies, you know, to get 20 people going so you could extend it for a week or so. Um, what happened over the 70s and 80s and 90s, the filibuster became much easier to use. People got tired of talking on the floor. They started sort of creating systems where you could just sort of tell someone you intended to filibuster, and that was taken as a filibuster. Um, it became user-friendly. Even during those decades, it wasn't used on everything. It was still used somewhat infrequently. Um, when McConnell came to power, this user-friendly filibuster was something he was able to deploy on a mass basis using it to obstruct everything that Democrats tried to do and everything that President Obama tried to do. And that is what has brought us to the gridlock state of the Senate that we have today. I have one question that just has sort of been going on my head for, for the last few weeks uh, and, and, and sort of wondered about how did it did and why did it uh, lose its teeth and just become something you could do and then, you know, that's it everybody nobody has to stand there talking and it's just filibustered until you know until it it's you know that's it the bill dies or whatever i mean right. what made them decide to do something like that because it took the the you know it took the ability then to get anything done really uh after that. right yeah no it's a really good question and and the answer is complicated um but there are two basic parts to it one is that after 1964, when the first Southern filibuster against the Civil Rights Bill was broken by Lyndon Johnson, the filibuster started to lose its direct association with white supremacy and segregation. Um, it started to be used on other issues. Um, and so that sort of made other senators more willing to use it. It wasn't considered as um, toxic a tool uh, after a decade or so when it wasn't no longer directly associated with civil rights. Um, so it's sort of it's like a you know a, a brand name drug losing its um, going generic and going into the marketplace, and so more senators started started to use it. Um, and then the other thing that happened was that this, the Senate was facing a management challenge at this time. Um, its workload was growing massively. Uh, it had to there are new agencies being created like the EPA. Um, that means new uh, appropriations that the Senate needs to pass, much more work for it to do. New committees were being created. Um, and so the leader's job got a lot harder. Um, and so just from a sort of management perspective, they started to uh, try to figure out ahead of time who was going to be filibustering bills. Because if the leader brought a bill to the floor and it ran into a filibuster, um, it would block action like, like the ship in the Suez Canal. It would block everything behind it. Uh, so they started asking people ahead of time, does anybody plan to filibuster a bill? <laughs> And if someone simply signaled that they planned to filibuster with a, you know, today that's done via email or a phone call, um, that signal 
raise the threshold from a simple majority to a supermajority by mm-hmm. custom and by practice, because the leader knew that they would need a supermajority to clear it, because if they brought it to the floor, someone would filibuster it. Um, but it's that application of the rule that, that made it user-friendly. Um, and then what happened, a third thing, which is that both parties started to use it because it lost its, it had lost its association with civil rights, and so they started to use it. And, and so it, it became sort of more normalized because both parties were participating in this normalization process. Democrats certainly used it during my time in the Senate. But one key thing to keep in mind is that even as it became normalized, even as it became used on issues other than civil rights, and even as both parties used it, it never stopped advantaging the conservative side of the spectrum over the liberal side. Um, Multiple studies have been done on this. I looked at it in my book, and it consistently benefits conservatives more than progressives. And there's a simple Mm -hmm. reason for this, which is that the conservative side is the party of the status quo. The filibuster is a tool that makes it easy to stop things and block things. And While it sometimes comes in handy for progressives and liberals, it overwhelmingly is more useful to the party that wants to block and stop change. And that is a pattern that has uh, been consistent over several decades and and basically for the entire course of the filibuster's existence. Well, I'm glad that you explained that because I think it's important for people to know why it changed uh, to at least – if they're not opposed to the ending the filibuster, understand why it should go back to the way it was, because it was that way longer than it was this way. <laughs> and, right, that's right. And if I could actually <laughs> just add one more point to that, which is that, you know, the Senate never made a conscious decision to start requiring 60 votes for everything. You know, it was this bad, it sort of backed into it over decades through these sort of right. bank, bank shot events and sort of responses to management crises. It never decided we as a body now want to start requiring 60 um, it just whoever it was convenient for at the time sort of declared that this was the way it should be. And over several decades, it sort of became that way. But what we have now is a gridlock state of affairs. that is exactly what the framers predicted would happen if we put something like this into the system. Mm-hmm. And so now we've had a lot of talk uh, about reform, a lot of people talking about abolishing it. You and I spoke about uh, various things that could be done uh, and about ending the filibuster. We've seen senators moving. Some of the senators who previously were opposed to doing anything like uh, ending the filibuster or or reforming it, like Amy Klobuchar, people who um, identify as moderates. We've now seen the president change his position. And the press conference yesterday, he seemed to go further. Talk a little bit about, and this is you obviously as uh, a former aide to the Senate majority leader, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about how uh, senators are speaking, what you're thinking is going to happen, and, and how the president is speaking. Yeah. I mean, I think what you've seen is this issue has successfully made the jump from being considered sort of the providence of the far left and is now firmly in the mainstream. Um, You know, as you mentioned, someone like Senator Klobuchar doesn't come out and she's come out very aggressively uh, against it. If if this is not something that that moderates think is is a safe issue for them and something that they want to support. Um, So that's that's a healthy development. Um, I think part of what's happening is that people are seeing that the filibuster is not sort of standing in the way um, against uh, far left policies like Medicare for all or, you know, um, things like that. Uh, what it's doing is it's blocking centrist policies from being passed. I mean, Biden passed the American Rescue Plan through reconciliation, which is a complicated process that allows you to get around the filibuster if you can pass it with a majority. It worked for for the ARP, but it's not going to work for most other issues. So now they're looking out at the rest of the Biden agenda and seeing that pretty much all of it is going to get blocked by the filibuster. Um, And these aren't far-left policies. These are are Biden's centrist, 
moderate, very popular policies. Um, so I think there's sort of a reality that's setting on Democrats where they're saying, well, man, we're not just going to give up on our agenda, you know, three months in um, and then to sit around twiddling our thumbs for the next two years until the midterms. We want to get stuff done. And this is what we have to do. And that's what you heard Biden say. You know, I mean, I loved his line about saying, you know, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I, I tend to be pretty good at figuring out how to get things done in the United States Senate. Um, and that's certainly true. Uh, but that's what it's coming down to. It's it's a question of do you want to deliver on the results that you promised people you would do if you got elected, or are you just going to give up and then go try to explain to the American people that it's Republicans' fault for blocking things? And I think of those two choices, the option of getting things done and going to the people with an agenda you're proud of and that improves their lives is the much better option. So um, I'm very pleased with what I see in the caucus. I think um, the, you know they sort of reach a point where they start to move as a unit on things like this, and I think that's what you're seeing. Um, it appears that the idea of, sort of going back to a talking filibuster is what's picking up the most traction with them. And I think that's that's a very good idea. Um, there's devils in the details with that. Um, we could talk more about that. But I but I think that, you know, the basic concept of endorsing reform is very important as a principle. And, and you see them endorsing that. And that is major progress. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged. You know, I, I think that uh, they could have spent this year chasing Republican votes not getting them, and then winding up at the end of the year with nothing to show for it. And it's pretty clear that they're they're very um, conscious of that and the risk in that, and they don't intend to take that path. And that is that is very encouraging. So people should be encouraged by seeing the discussion because you're right, they could have been going in a different direction. And, and not trying so much, I guess, to read the tea leaves every day a new senator says something that seems like a backtrack. And you know I'm talking about – Joe Manchin, or we've seen even mm-hmm. even other senators say, well, I'm concerned, or I'm this, I'm that. Um, we don't know what's going on, what kind of talks are happening behind the scenes. Yeah, that's right. I would not, I would not be concerned about the backtracking. I mean, if you had told me at the beginning of the year that sitting here at the end of March, um, that we would already have major movement from Manchin, um, Feinstein and even the president himself, I would have told you you were wildly optimistic. So I'm I'm very happy with where we are. Um, but the key thing that folks should evaluate when they listen to these answers is: is the senator endorsing the basic concept of reforming the filibuster? Um, and if they're saying yes to that, that's really all that matters right now, um, because there is this is likely to be you know a somewhat there's going to be a long process. Um, I think that, you know, there is an urgency to it because we have to um, get this done in time to pass things like um, the For the People Act and um, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And we have to pass them in time for them to actually go into effect before the midterms. So, you know, we're talking about like September here. So when I say a long process, I don't mean, you know, uh, months and months. I mean, weeks and months. Um, but but still, you know, what what's important at this at this stage of the process is can we have a conversation that says reform is going to happen. And and that is becoming clear. Back in January, it wasn't even clear reform was going to happen. You know, now we see that it's more likely than not that there's going to be reform, you know, and then we can shift into the conversation about, okay, exactly what does that look like? Um, but the thing is, once the caucus endorses reform, and once they start going down that path, they're not going to implement a reform that gets them all the downside of, you know, being criticized by Republicans and others for, for taking this extreme step, but doesn't get them the upside of actually being able to pass things. So, you know, even if they go, uh, you know, and do sort of a weak reform first, which I don't think is wise, they should just do it, you know, strong the first time. Um, I think they're going to continue taking, you know, uh, uh, shots at this until they find a 
way to do it that actually works because I don't think they're going to put themselves in a position, you know, to get criticized for taking this extreme maneuver, but then not actually get anything out of it. Um, that would just be uh, a political suicide. Um, so I think that, that, that what's important now is endorsing the concept of reform. If you have the caucus behind that, then you're in a good you're in a good position moving forward. Really uh, great getting your perspective, especially as we move forward on this. So I, I appreciate your taking the time and coming on the program, and and I'd love to speak to you further as we move forward <laughs> on this as well. Thanks so much for coming. Absolutely, on today. thanks so much. Uh, Adam Gentleson is the author of Kill Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. A former. Uh, Deputy Chief of Staff to Senator Harry Reid, uh, Executive Director of Battleborn Collective. Follow him at A. Gentleson, A with a, then a J, E-N-T-L-E-S-O-N. We're back in a few minutes. Michelangelo's Seniorelli, Michelangelo's Seniorelli. on Sirius XM. 